Hello, welcome back to the David Watson podcast. And today I had the great pleasure of talking to Timothy Forty, doctor, journalist, and author. So many talents, too many to mention. And we had a fantastic conversation about her latest book, Stats Library of Truth. And that's where I'm going to leave it. I want you to listen and work it out for yourself. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, please like and subscribe and check out the links below for all the information on Kathy. Good morning and good evening. Welcome to the David Watson podcast and thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm fine this morning. It's my morning. Aloha from the island of Maui in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, so let's get so we're actually going to pick up from where we were just talking before I started recording the actual podcast. And we t tell me about your experience with the energy that you were talking about. Um, well, David asked me about uh, Lahaina, and that's what, you know, it just got totally burnt off the map, uh, an old cultural Hawaiian area of Maui, the oldest, in fact. And a lot of the old cult uh, Hawaiian families live there. And it, like I said, it just got wiped out in a day. And I just happened to be there that morning. I, I wasn't there during the huge fire that happened in the afternoon that that pretty much vaporized um, hundreds of people and maybe thousands. I mean, they're, they're not being really accurate about the death count. Um, and I was feeling... Uh, I started feeling it the night before. I live in a different part of uh, Maui uh, and about 30 minutes from Lahaina. And I was starting to feel rolling waves of energy in my head the, uh, the night before. And I'm very sensitive to energy. And I knew immediately it was scalar wave energy. Uh, it was a different type of energy. Some people call it an energy weapon. I mean, it can be used good. It can be used bad, just like anything. And uh, when I got closer to Lahaina, uh, and now there was no reports, there was an early morning fire at the school and they put it out, but the winds were high, but there was no, no warnings on the radio or anything that there was a problem going on in Lahaina from the rest of the island. And when I got there, I could feel this rolling energy even stronger in my head. So um, thinking, looking back at it now and uh, looking at all of the um, the evidence that's come forward from the local standpoint, who and most of this, a lot of it maybe didn't make it onto mainstream news, um, uh, certainly probably not in the UK where you are, uh, but um, it looks to me like there was, there was some type of directed energy weapon at play and uh, a land grab. They wanted those ancient culture, they, they wanted the old Hawaiian families out. And the only way to do it was probably to um, level the area, kind of what's going on in Acapulco right now in Mexico. So people are starting to see this type of activity around the world. And it's sort of like the silent enemy. You can't point the finger at anyone. And, and that's, that's yeah. I'm sure, whoever's doing it, that's the beauty of it, you know. Um, I'm sure there was some random arson at work, too, and some other things. But, you know, it's all plausible deniability. Oh, there was so factors. It was the wind. But, you know, we looked at Doppler radar was being able to be steered that weather right into that area. And that's coming out now, how they can steer Doppler weather um, and uh, to certain areas to target them. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's un unfortunate. We live in very... Um, Unusual times, challenging times. Very unknown. And, uh, There's lots of unknown. 
what is yeah. um yeah. what what is the value to the land to having it? Um, well, most of the land was was uh, handed down from you know family to family generations, and it was very valuable land because it's right on the uh, on the coast there. It's right uh, on the water. And um, and these people did not move and that land was getting more and more expensive and they were just, you know, that th they owned it and uh, they, you know, there was there was projects they wanted to redevelop certain areas and those people would not move. And, uh, you know, it was sort of uh, I, I have to say, you know, I have a friend of mine who's um, who's written many books and he's kind of like a timeline reader. He kind of looks in the future and sees what is the most possible or probable a timeline that has the most energy attached to it and that's the most likely one to actually happen in the here and now and when i told him two and a half years ago i was moving to maui he goes don't you remember i wrote in a prior book um and i went back and checked it he said that maui was going to be considered like the switzerland elite banking center in the future okay and uh, he said, so um, there would be factions of it that would need to be changed before that happened. Of course, at the time, I had no idea what that meant. You know, you think of Hawaii and you think of volcanic eruptions and things like that, like on the big island. Um, and now, you know, they're talking about smart cities and everything else. And so you see, you know, perhaps there has been a plan in place for quite a while to get to that point in the future where it could be sort of, you know, a playground for the rich. And you have to get you have to get rid of the Hawaiian culture, the poor culture. They're very poor, yeah. you know, and kind of wipe that out. So to um, did any. Yeah, of unfortunately. Survive? Did any survive? Um, well, you know, there's there's so many children that were never found. They were sent home from school that day because of the winds and so forth. And some of their parents worked on other parts of the island. So they never got back in because there was, you know, blockades, you know, from the uh, cars moving and getting to certain areas. And, you know, there's been many speculation about what happened to them because I, you know, can look at certain things energetically. I knew that um, if indeed, you know, they could verify it was a directed energy weapon, those children were vaporized because it's a, like a microwave. It just destroys you from the inside out. Yeah. And so they'll never find they'll never find those remains. The ones that they did find that are skeletons were probably further away from the uh, actual attack and were um, uh, were casualties of actual fire. Yeah. You know, so the, uh, we, we look at this probably um, maybe a thousand or more. And they said, oh, no, there's only like 80 some bodies. But the whole town is gone. How does that happen? You know? Yeah. And it was a town of like 13,000. So, yeah, something's not kosher, kind of like the the uh, 9-11. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I just want to, because like I said, it's so rough. Is there a rough figure of how many of the 13,000 died who lived there? Um, well, according to the government, you know, uh, they said, uh, I think they originally had 90 some people because they found bodies. And then then they brought it down to 80 some you know, it's like went down instead of up. And yet all these people are still unaccounted for, you know, and uh, uh, so, you know, they would still but own the land, happened, wouldn't they? if they're alive, they still own the land. Uh, well, the thing is, if the land, the FEMA comes in there and if there's no one to sign off on that land being being cleaned or, you know, from everything else, 
you know, some, yeah, that's what I say. Suddenly yeah. that land comes into the government's hands, you know? So there's a lot of things. I mean, I was up at a farm up in upcountry Kula, which also had some fires at the time, our organic farming areas. And, um, you know, this one farm looks like it had a target on its back, all the homes around it, pristine, but the whole farm got attacked. And she did say something about, you know, there was a drone at that evening over her land. And what is a drone doing at night? And the next morning at like early in the morning, like 12, 22 a.m., the fires start in her area. And I thought she owned the land. She didn't. She leased it. There's a lot of leasehold land on yeah. Hawaii. And, you know, you lease it for a certain amount of years, maybe 30 years. But if you're not actively living, farming, or anything else, the uh, the leaseholder can default yeah, cool. and yeah. take back the land. So you know that's happened to a lot of people here as well. So yeah, it's a tragedy. It's crazy. So <laughs> moving forward, how many books have you written? Well, um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I years ago I wrote a children's a series book series book on on uh, um, death and dying, and uh, then I wrote uh, a nonfiction book on my own near death experience that happened in two thousand three, and that's called Fractals of God: A Psychologist's Near Death Experience and Journeys into the Mystical. And then during the COVID years, you know, I wrote this uh, kind of nonfiction fiction sci fi fictional uh, series called uh, Stack's Library of Truth. And uh, so I wrote three of those and it's a continuing story. It's a series and I'm actually writing the fourth one now, what happens 20 years later. So I'm having to project myself into the future and see what, what, how much different it looks. It doesn't look too good, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. so explain to people about stacks of uh, library of truth. Okay. Well, um, this, the story for Stacks. Now, Stacks is what's usually behind in libraries. It's all the research materials and books and the librarians have to go into the Stacks. But the word Stacks also in computer language means a kernel of information. I didn't know that at the time I was no, I told didn't. what to write. Um, and so I had this very vivid, lucid dream about the whole plot for the story. And one night and I, I had to get up and I had to start, you know, writing down the story points and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote it into kind of a little web series once. And then years later, I decided, you know, I think I'm going to make this. There was a lot more here than than I actually put into a little tiny web series. And so I'm going to write the books. And I thought it was only going to be one book. And it turned into three because the rabbit hole kept getting deeper on this book. And what happens is. Uh, a young uh, librarian, and he's sent to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., our biggest library here, one of the biggest in the world. And uh, maybe it is the biggest, actually, I forgot. Uh, and he he's uh, he has a very unusual background. This is where I drew on as a clinical psychologist, my own psychopathology knowledge. He has acquired savant syndrome which means uh, most of the time that happens if you've had some type of accident, head injury or something. And he had one when he was seven years old by a baseball hitting him. And it changed kind of his neurology. And he got uh, he became kind of a genius in math, which can happen. Yeah. And he also had something called synesthesia. He could see the world in numbers. You know, now mm -hmm. some people see the world in colors 
you know, if that was synesthesia or music or other things, you know, is the brain can be rewired lots of weird and strange ways. And uh, this turns out to be a bless, both a blessing and a curse for him where he starts, I'm not going to give away the whole plot, but no. he, um, he's, he's assigned to work in the stacks of the Library of Congress, all the research materials that you gather when people who are researching something in the main reading room request certain data and you have to find it. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of black holes in library, things get mis, mis, uh, uh, categorized or misplaced. And so they call it a black hole in libraries. Well, anyway, he stumbles upon an interdimensional portal into a library of truth. So a library hidden within another library where all the truth is kept on everyone and everything since the beginning of time. And it's all in holographic form. Yeah. And he realizes that, you know, that there's so much there and there's so much that has been hidden from mankind and or has been mis mislabeled or miswritten or some forth like that. And he finds about the corruption in Washington and the global and everything that's going on. And so his he tries to working with sort of an undercover uh, uh, journalist, he tries to uncover this and 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 uh, let the world know what's been going on without landing up killed in a body bag. And uh, once he starts down that rabbit hole, he realizes it's much deeper than he thought, that it takes in, you know, uh, maybe other species and races and 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 other agendas. So it it's it's so multi-layered. It's I would con- consider it a thriller, a drama, a mystery, and even has uh, you know, romance in there as well. So it's yeah. multi-genre. It's in, it's interesting, isn't it throughout whenever you look at history. There's kind of this. There's two ways that I observe, try to observe it. There has always been somebody that's trying to take control of the area, and they they do that by <laughs> moving to the next one, to the next one. And no, no matter how much you know, you know, Genghis Khan, you know, you see what I mean, whoever you want it, you know, Caesar, whoever, they just have to keep expanding the empire. And there's something that separates them that they are driven. And there's no satisfaction to that hunger that they have to just keep claiming something else, something else, something else. And then there's another theme that flows through history where there is an organization that wants to control the world. And and it's it's, it's always like, (laughs) after a while, there's got to be some truth in it. Because it seems Mm. to be a recurring Mm. thing through history that something or someone is always trying to control the narrative the 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 resources the world and yeah maybe that's the ultimate question you know maybe that sits down there with what's the meaning of life well you know there's always darkness and light you know and they're always going to be battling it's like we're we're maybe just chess players on this big board game and moving around, you know, I mean, some people think that we're living in a simulated reality, you know, and and uh, that time is all simultaneous and, and you know, all this and, and we're just, our bodies are just avatar players, you know, yeah. so um, who knows, you know, I'm not going to say definitive, but I, I try to keep an open mind about everything. I mean, even having worked with a very unusual um a psychology uh, therapy clients over the years. I'm I'm retired from cl- uh, therapy now, uh, and uh, but you know I saw I saw 
and listen to some of the strangest things that you that 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 would fill books of science fiction. And and they weren't all delusional either. You know, uh, they could prove some of the stuff that was going on to them. So, yeah, there'll always be a, what we call a boogeyman. Yeah. And uh, a conflict. And in any good book, you need a conflict and you need you need your characters to develop. They may have foibles that they need to rise above or or not, you know, and that's that's why I drew on a lot of my um, background in psychology to make really realistic characters that, you know, had flaws. We all have flaws. We try to cover them up and pretend they're not there, but they're there. And we have to deal with them. And so do the uh, the uh, characters in the uh, Stacks Library of Truth books have to as well, which makes it more more realistic. I mean, people have said to me reading these books, are you sure this is sci-fi? <laughs> this, uh, and, and some of the things you wrote in the first book are already coming through, <laughs> you know? So it is, it is interesting, isn't it? Because every political leader who, who takes over from the previous person and this is something I'm never sure of. Do they know all the secrets? Or is there somebody that says you don't need to know? And I actually suspect well, it's in, more somebody says you don't need to know. Um, well, they tell us we don't need to know. But, you know, in my book, some of these, these secret societies have access to the library of truth. Now, you know, you hear stories about, you know, um, recovered alien technology that that you know something called um um what do you call it um looking glass technology yeah. that was a cube like thing where that you could look into the future and that it went around many of the government's hands to find out you know what was going to happen and you know they check in with with people who can read timelines my friend who wrote timelines you know he he would talk about early on he was so he was so good at it he would be he would be approached by CIA, CIA operatives. He would just give him a subject and say, write, write whatever you see. So, you know, they're also using, you know, um, you know, the psi abilities of people to see what's going in the future. They may deny it, but it's true. And he said, I didn't want to de deal with that. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. You know, just like I worked uh, in um, Northern California with uh, an altered state uh, uh, research lab. You know, and they were at uh, it was right before I came there. They were working on um, the Green Berets and using biofeedback to make them all work in unison as one mind, all alpha state. So we know that the government has been involved in some kind of, you know, shady things yeah, <laughs> along yeah. along the way. And to deny that, I think, is just naive <laughs> that it doesn't exist. So, um, and, and you know, we don't know the full story on anything. So, no, I mean, there was lots of, lots of well-documented, um, experiments with LSD, especially by the CIA. Um, I, I imagine yes. that's just that, that they were the most public about it and that everyone else just kept it quiet. Um, well, they but, use psychic spying too, remote viewing. I met the person at Stanford Research who who headed that up, uh, Russell Targ, with help put up. I happened to meet him at a New Year's Eve party one night many years ago, and we started talking about a number of us. And he said, "Oh yeah, I can teach you how to do remote viewing. It's not that hard. It just takes practice to be good at it." And he did teach us outside of the party at another time. And you know, it's true; anyone can learn it. 
And, you know, we're, we're all kind of like antennas. You know, we have no idea of this, the really psychic abilities that many of us have that lay dormant. Funny enough, I was talking to um, a lady on this podcast, I think it was a couple of years ago, and we were talking about, if you go out into the wild, how attuned animals are. And they can just sense if you're there. And you can they might not be able to see you, but they start looking, they start smelling the air. They know that something has changed. And we were talking about what what did we, as we evolved to farming from being nomadic and into farming into industrial revolution, what, what did we give up that we once had? Mm. Because because when I look at it like that, that once upon a time there would have been skill sets that we don't possess today, whether it be some form of looking forward, some form of clairvoyance, some sort of awareness to energy or whatever. The more people that have those skill sets, you're going to get levels where people are really exceptional at it. You know, just like physic, we have people who are physically strong, people who are physically fast, people that can physically ping a golf ball down a golf course with huge accuracy. So there must have been, you know, it's possible there was a time where humans were incredibly attuned and the best were at a level we wouldn't even be able to comprehend. Well, so much of our history has been either lost, hidden, erased, or due to our planet uh, changing and having several pole reversals, which are documented. You know, it has happened. It's not, you know, it's not conspiracy. Of course, I like to call yeah. conspiracy theories these days spoiler alerts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> <You know>? definitely. <laughs> and and I think, you know, having worked with a lot of children as a therapist, they're actually much more tuned in and psychic. And then it's been sort of, you know, kind of uh, uh, behavior-wise, uh, pummeled out of them or something. Yeah. Like, oh, we don't talk about imaginary playmates, or we don't talk about this, or children who said, "No, my name is really this," and that's not the name they were given at birth, or they have prior memories of things, and people just go, "Oh, they have just this overactive imagination," and instead of embracing that, like many prior civilizations might have done, you know. Um, if you look back and you hear about through all go through all the ancient texts, they talk about, you know, lands that went down that are no longer there, things like Lemuria or Atlantis or so forth like that. And and, you know, they were much more tuned in, like much more advanced, actually, than we are now. And I mean, if you look at reincarnation wise in the last 100 years, I think a lot of those Atlantean souls have reincarnated. And that's why we had such an explosion in technology. Well, the, the you know the the lesson here is: Are we going to commit the sins of what the Atlanteans did and overused it? They had AI, and, you know. They you know definitely. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Egypt, leading groups there, metaphysical groups and so forth like that, and and you know I it opened up my memory banks being in Egypt to a lot of things, and I would you know they would say, oh, this is for that, and I go. No, that's not. That's not how I remember yeah, yeah. it at all. <laughs> and, and and I would tell them, and sometimes I would tell them, uh, well, this is the real entrance to uh, like the temple, what they, we call the temple beautiful and the temple of sacrifice at Saqqara. They thought it was just some, you know, uh, platform that that uh, horses ran around. And I said, no, that's the old opening to it. Years later, they started, you know, digging. And sure enough, <laughs> that's, 
you know, so you, you kind of have to, we all of our memories, the collective consciousness memories are all, you know, encoded in us. And, you know, so I kind of knew that they had, they had AI back then. They had uh, the, the God that they called Anubis, yep. which was like a black faced jackal. You know, he was uh, the God of the afterlife of the underworld of mummification of embalming. And he was also like protector of the graves and tombs. Well, he wasn't, he was, a, he was a robot. He was a, a machine, you know, and that's, and, and I know this will sound very strange to people, especially Egyptologists, but I was shown this and I thought, Oh, wow. Is this what, uh, the sleeping prophet Edgar Casey talked about when he said some of the information from that time has been hidden away. One of the places is in the right paw of the Sphinx. But if you if you went into there before mankind was ready for that information, it would awaken the sleeping guards. And yes. he never he never explained what that meant. And now, you know, looking back at it, sure. I'm sure that there is some type of AI thing there that will awaken and make sure, you know, it's protected. So, I mean, this is going far out on a limb. We're talking now. Yeah, but it's, but, it's, it's interesting, know. isn't it? Because I, yeah. I, I, I am one of those thing, people that don't believe, I don't believe AI is a good idea. I, I don't, I, you, you can't have something. That, yeah. <laughs> you can't have something that thinks for itself and, and at the same time won't believe we're a threat. Yes. I, I think, you know, they say, oh, it was their laser technology, their big crystals and everything that brought it down. Uh, that's a, maybe a small little part of it, but it was their, their AI. It was the AI. And that's why we're, we're just a history repeating itself. And what they're not looking at is, of course, they always say, oh, it's for man's better humanity, you know, for evolutionary. You won't have to work and you'll have artificial limbs and you'll have this and that and you'll have super brain and super whatever. And, you know, um, what they, the, the pharaohs, you know, they were really obsessed with the afterlife, you know? Yeah. And um, I think that they knew from the ancient Atlanteans that in the future, that their DNA could be cloned. Now, cloning is not just physical, the physical attributes of a person. You can, it can acquire all of their physical knowledge. I mean, their, their, their environmental learning and everything else. And then if you build on that, then you have a clone that has more things. And if you clone that, you'll have that, that, that have the prior clones experiences. And they knew that in the afterlife, that's why they, they, they mummified many of their, um, their uh, pets, their loved ones, their, uh, uh, and everything else in the tombs with them, their servants, so that when they came back, into the afterlife and could rise again, they would have their whole court around them. And so, you know, I think that uh, what, what people are missing, uh, you know, and, and, you know, some of this is because I've had a near-death experience. I can start to see things because I, you know, I was kind of on the other side. And, and I saw that with the AI, that this, this, third dimensional earth, which we are now, you know, um, in, inhabiting, uh, that um, it's, it's, it was sort of meant for human angelic souls to incarnate on and to learn their lessons, you know, whatever they wanted to, it wasn't like retribution or so forth, yeah. but as to a playground for a soul to evolve and learn maybe very more difficult uh, lessons within 
the matter of the body, because this is the first dimension where, you know, physical uh, human beings actually are in matter, not like the first and second. And and so, um, you know, when you start incorporating AI into machines and into clones and into everything else, it becomes inhabitable, uninhabitable to a human angelic soul coming through because free choice is no longer there. This is supposed to be about free choice. Suddenly you have machines making some of those choices for you. So what would happen in the future was that uh, incarnating souls will, will bypass third dimensional earth. And as a result of a third dimensional earth will probably um, die out at some point in time and collapse in upon itself. I mean, that's kind of dire warning, but that's, you know, we're, we're talking about sense, you know, maybe hundreds of years away from now, but it, it will, it's the beginning of what will eventually happen. So, you know, you have to look at the sole evolutionary picture of AI and not just, Oh yeah, it'll make me super smart. <laughs> you know? I, I can yeah, see down the road when it comes to AI, I can see down the road that there will be collections of people that refuse to have anything to do with it. And they they almost like the, the word that popped into my head is almost like the Amish, you know, where they're the mm. people will look at them with some form of amazement and like observe them and how and talk about the simplicity of their life. And actually all they've done is don't, they don't have AI technology. They're just like, we'll, we'll live without yeah. it. Yeah. Right. You know, it's sort of like uh, it, it is to um, to actually it's part of the transhumanism movement you know, to make man into something else that he wasn't intended to be and to actually cause his demise in the process. Yeah. It will, yeah. I think, ultimately down the road, if there isn't some balance and check put in. It's the, the, the bit that I'll never be convinced about is that if you give genuine AI as opposed to the current kind of situation, which is really a very sophisticated sort of, algorithm and search engine as opposed to actually independently thinking and figuring things out for itself although it's definitely knocking on that door it's ultimately if you when you're there when that happens it, it's going to want self-preservation and you can't have self-preservation alongside us so at which point Right, right now, this is this is a transitional evolutionary point. I mean, you know, some of the old masters and things said, you know, every two hundred and fifty-six thousand years or every twenty-six thousand, if you're looking at dimensionals, things change and go through a trans trans uh, transition, an evolutionary transition. And I think that, um, you know, I think that things have gotten so bad on planet Earth right now. That it's it's making those complacent souls who were ready to move on, who got kind of comfortable here, saying, "Okay, I'm not coming back to this dimension. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm moving to the next, and that's where we're supposed to be." I think I think it's kind of was a wake up call. Is more people waking up to say, like, you know, it seems like what's black is white now, what's white is black, and what's up is down, and you know, how can this be? None of this makes sense. You know, well, if you're if you have any like common sense, you know, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, so uh, I think that that's, uh, you know, when I was, when I uh, was in the tunnel experience of my near death and experience, and they stopped me before I could go into the light tunnel. And I didn't, and I, you know, I wanted to go in because I didn't know much better. This happened many, many years ago. And I 
tried to will myself to go in, but it, I, I got stopped. I couldn't go. And, you know, then I thought, oh, this is boring. And all this energy poured into me and changed me coming back. And I turned into kind of a physics geek. But, but I realize now um, they were trying to say, because, because you don't plan on coming back to this dimension when you die. Yeah. And the light is a, is a trap. It's a reincarnation trap for third dimensional earth. And so I was like, well, what do I do then, <laughs> you know? And they said, you know, when you pass over, when you leave your physical body, uh, wait in the stillness of the void, you know, and your soul will light the way to where you are supposed to go, whatever dimension it is. I mean, may, we're all aliens when you think about it. We all come from you know, probably different planes and different dimensions of experience. And some of us came back down to third dimensional earth right now because this is a, a really interesting time. And some of us, you know, wanted front seats to this evolutionary change. You know, and, you know, the others are, you know, getting sucked up into the fear of it. I, I find myself observing it more, the insanity of it, you know, and saying it's part of the process, you know, unfortunately, you know, and uh, but it is waking up a lot of people. It's serving its purpose in that respect. It's, it's, it's definitely a a crazy time. There's no way you'd have convinced me 20 years ago that we'd be having discussions that people like on the media and the politicians today literally denying basic science that you're taught as a as a child at school yeah hang on a second this makes zero sense there has to be (laughs) which is why i start leaning towards you know the like you know i've i forgot what you called it you know conspiracy theories they're not conspiracy theories there was it you said um um oh spoiler alerts that's it yeah (laughs) Oh, no, I spoiler alerts yeah you <laughs> know so we're running like, out of conspiracy theories all those conspiracy theories are coming true you know these are spoiler alerts it's like hey look what's coming and you're just like this, this... yeah it, it's it's from um and, and like a, we've gone way off track but kind of from it like a, a psychological point of view um it, it's fascinating where this has gone because it, it's just like people yeah, are is. just basically denying child, you know, kindergarten science. You know, everybody, you know, by the time you're 10 knows this, you know, it's not like you have to be clever to figure it out. So can I just no, go back? Yet to... still, some people still don't get it. That's... <laughs> I can only put it down to a level of like delusion and narcissism. It's, I, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of narcissism going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, a long conversation with, with a friend of mine. Who's a I doctor. call this, I also call this, besides spoiler alerts, I call this the, the age of discernment. That's yeah. that's my my yeah. uh, uh, chapter, tagline chapter. for what we're going through. Because we're, we're having to sift, yes, we're having to sift the weed from the chaff. Yeah. And uh, we can't always listen to, you know, e- what each side is saying, because, you know, as as we know, in any kind of cult movement, there's usually a truth sandwiched in between two lies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yes, you know, and, you know, they're both kind of lying to some degree, you know, and uh, some more so than others. I won't point fingers. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of it's it's forcing us to 
look inward and follow our own internal voice that is discerning what's right for us, what resonates with us instead of what, you know, I mean, before I became a therapist, I used to work for CBS News in New York as a researcher and then a field producer. And, you know, I'd have to say journalism was so much different in those days, you know, it was in my 20s then. And you had to provide both sides to a story. Now we don't get that. We get more opinion than anything else. And, you know, it's uh, uh, you you always did your digging, your due diligence to to learn both things. I mean, sometimes I look at things of people provide video clips and I'm saying, that's not what I'm seeing. They're telling me I'm seeing or I'm going to go back and watch the full one before they've edited it. And it's something totally different. And, you know, so but that was my training as a as a journalist. Uh, But I don't think they're training those journalists today to do any of that stuff. So. No, no, and it's there's definitely her, that her, they call herd reporting. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely the you hear a lot with a narrative of if we don't report what we're told to, we're losing our jobs. So you hear a lot of journalists right. in the background, you know, talking about look. Well, just getting. Yep. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. So I. No, no, it's okay. You know, I mean, that's why I had to include a journalist in in the stacks books. And 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 by the way, just the on the subject of intuition, you know, I was uh, I got a really strong intuitive hit uh, that I needed to get to the Library of Congress to do all my research to make sure it was accurate. You know, from an employee standpoint, no later than March of 2020, the first week in March. And at the time I was doing I was leading a group in Egypt in January and I thought, uh, well, what's the rush? You know, I'll, I, I I got some time to get to it. But it was so persistent that I booked a flight to uh, Washington and, you know, spent the most fabulous a whole week there with, with the librarians and the main reading room and so forth like that and getting behind the scenes in the stacks. And uh, within, I think it was half a week or a week after I left, the whole country shut down for COVID. Uh, The whole world actually shut down for COVID. And the library did as well. And had I not followed that intuition, I would never have had that opportunity. And it was it was it was such an amazing opportunity to to soak up all of that knowledge and and antiquity. I mean, it was started from our Thomas Jefferson, from his, you know, his own little personal library and what it grew to. And, you know, all the congressional records, everything is kept there. And, you know, but then you think about, well, what what would be a library truth? That would be like uh, that would be like the Library of Congress on steroids, you know, Uh, um, Nicholas Cage film, isn't there? The National Treasure with Nicholas Cage. Yes, and he. There was only one. The President's Book, is it? Yes, the President's Book. I don't know if that really exists. You know, uh, they they that was the only movie that they used a little part of it. They took in the Library of Congress, but there's been no other stories or movies out there that have taken the whole Library of Congress as their setting point. So I thought, you know, this this you know, and it. I, you know, I contacted my local congressman and got to see the Capitol behind the scenes. And I had some friends in Washington who worked in congressional offices. And, you know, they told me the scoop on how things, a lot of things in Washington, you know, uh, are. And and so, you know, I thought, um, I'm going to unmask Washington yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in my books. And 
and then mix them with some of my own very unusual experiences, you know, over, you know, I've, I've explored the water tunnels under the Great Pyramid. I've been, uh, uh, you know, in uh, underneath the Sphinx, you know, I've done ancient alien artifact digs in, in Mexico, you know, so I, there was a lot of things that I can incorporate in from my own personal experiences. And when my, fr- you know, my friends first started reading the books, they go, oh, this one's Kathy's experience, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. but you know, you kind of weave it in and, you know, so people will say, wow, it's a fast moving book. You know, it's uh, I'm not the kind of writer that's into a lot of flowery descriptive language, you know, that just goes on and on, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, James Michener's Hawaii takes 20 pages to describe, a, you know, plant or something, you know, with the descriptive language. And, you know, I call it the kind of meat and potatoes writing. I wanted to move fast for people. I wanted to engage them. I want them to be, you know, like a page turner. So that something is and and yet at the same time, they're getting information that they probably, you know, uh, on the in the greater world, not necessarily I don't go into, you know, Democrat versus Republican or any of that stuff. You know, you can you can assign you can sign characters to whatever role you want to see. Some people say is this person who I think it is? (laughs) I said, you know, I put a disclaimer in the front of the book saying, you know, any, any reference to living or dead is purely coincidental, but you know, (laughs) when did this, not quite, (laughs) where did this curiosity or curiosity impulse intuition, when, when did it start? Um, you know, um, as a child, I remember, my mother's, you know, calling me and, and I, and for some reason I, 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 I thought my name was Zariah <laughs> and that's obviously not my name. Nice name. And, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know now where that came from, you know, but, but I didn't, I didn't understand that then. And I had some profound things that I, I thought were profound for somebody who was, you know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. I remember thinking if, is there is there another Kathy somewhere in the world, like a parallel self that is experiencing reality just as I'm experiencing, but in a different time zone or different place? You know, I didn't even go into the fact of different planet, you know, and, you know, that's not something usually 11, 12, you know, 10, 11 year olds think about, you know, the, uh, the uh, parallel selves. And uh, but I did have a psychic opening when I was like 18 years old. I um, I unfortunately uh, was assaulted and by a stranger in a parking lot in downtown Chicago. And I thought I was going to die. I mean, I had a knife at my throat. I thought I was going to die besides being you know sexually assaulted and everything else. And uh, a movie screen opened in my head. I mean, I mean, I've never had that before, but a movie screen opened my head and I saw into the future. And I saw myself as an older woman sitting in a black Chinese lacquered rocking chair. And I could see uh, there was a hutch and and antique things on the hutch. And I could see the drapes. I could see the color of everything. It was so vivid. And there was two children at my feet, but they were faceless. And I was reading a children's book to them. And I knew in that moment, seeing that, that whatever happened, I was going to survive this attack and live to be an older person. And years later, when I went into who would be my, my, uh, he's long gone now, but my husband, my first husband, uh, there I was, I walked in and there was the living room with the Chinese lacquered 
rocking chair, the antiques, the color, everything. And I just stopped and I just was shocked because um, I think we can see into possible or probable futures sometimes. And that's it. I mean, I'm not an older woman and we're still with him. He's he's deceased, you know, but but uh, it was just showing me that, you know, you, I think you have some wiggle room, <laughs> you yeah. know, in in your future. Uh, that's what the free choice comes in. But but there was somewhat of a plan knowing that, yes, and I did write a children's book, you know, and uh, so that, you know, from working with people who've been abused from early on as a children, whether it be psychologically, sexually or physically, it tends to psychically open them. They become more hypervigilant because they have to start to read the danger signs of perhaps it's a, you know, a father or an uncle or so forth who always when is around them, you know, uh, hurts them. And they be, because they're, they're so hypervigilant, their senses magnify. And when that happens, it opens up psyability. So, you know, I'm not that unusual when I hear people have had Bill and I mean, not everyone, but, you know, they they probably had some type of early trauma. And it could be it could have been just been emotional, you know, but it was, you know, severe enough to open that up. So that was the first. And and then, of course, in 2003, I had my near death experience and uh, my heart stopped. And, you know, I didn't realize it had stopped. It shouldn't have stopped. I mean, there was nothing wrong with me. And I found myself sucked into this tunnel and uh, horizontal feet first. I always say traveling really fast towards this light. And, and and then I was stopped and I couldn't move. And I thought, oh, this is boring. I can't move. I can't will myself into the light. And I came back and spun me back around, sent me back through the tunnel. And it was a night I had been working, doing therapy with clients and so forth. And, and uh, you know, prior to that, I felt very strange. And then I got back in my physical body and it was all, my left side was paralyzed. So the voices in my head, which later I found out were some of these eighth dimensional beings um, were just telling me to relax that I, my heart had stopped and they were reconnecting the left side of my body. And, you know, after that happened, um, you know, I thought I needed to see a cardiologist. They said, no, not until years later did, for something else. Did I go to a cardiologist and the guy, and I didn't say anything about having a near-death experience or anything. And he goes, I can't understand why there's this scarring on the left side of your heart. And he said, have you ever had a heart attack or anything? And I thought, oh, I don't really want to get into this now. But it, there was the physical evidence of it. And, you know, so um, after I came back from the, that near-death experience, you know, I created uh, technology, uh, software technology. I became extremely creative. I, you know, uh, was interested in quantum physics, the cosmos, and seeing things that I hadn't seen before. So, yeah, you know, when people say, you know, near-death experiences can really change you dramatically, you know, they're not kidding. Just on the, <laughs> the near-death experience, the... Do you recall how physical it felt? Well, I felt like I was still Kathy. I felt like I still had my memories. I felt like I was still who I thought I was. Um, I didn't feel, I, I felt very light. Like I really wasn't in my dense body, like as if I was like out of body. And although I was aware of some type of because I, I saw myself going in there horizontal feet first, but it was like all my consciousness was right up here in my head. 
And, um, you know, I didn't worry about that. I remember when I got into the tunnel, my first thought was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I thought, did I, did I just die? What did I die of? I wasn't ill. You know, I never had any heart problems. And, um, you know, so that, that was, that was kind of eye opening. I mean, later, you know, I found out, you know, that the tunnel, uh, is like an energy conversion, uh, um, realm plane between dimensional, uh, frequencies of higher versus lower, denser versus lighter. And it was easier for all this new energy to come into me in this conversion tunnel. So, and right prior to that, that day, I had felt like this whoosh come out of my solar plexus area. And I remember feeling like empty. And I remember feeling like I was done with my work here. And they later I found out all my old souls, my old guides had left, which I didn't really know was there. I didn't know there was more than one. You know, that's why you're talking about muses and things like that. And I got this whole set of geeky ones. And, and you know, when I'm writing my, my stacks books, you know, I'm sitting there and I know what my endpoints are in the storyline. But as I'm writing it, it feels like I'm channeling this these books because stuff comes in that I've never thought about. And I'm sitting there writing it and I'm going, oh, really? Oh, you can do that. <laughs> you know, that's possible. You or ever so find, like that. So, yeah. Sorry, did you ever find when you're writing that there's times where it's, it's, a, it's a flow state and it's like a ride? And then, and before you know it, you could be, be 45 minutes it could be three hours but when it stops oh right, right we're, we're done now it's it just disappears and it's like okay we're done and it like like i said when i wrote my book it would it would it could be days or week before it came back and i'd persevere and sit down and okay let's write a paragraph just do a paragraph a day and see where it gets you but those there were moments and it's it's a bit like that scene in finding nemo where they teach him to ride the currents um but once you're out of them you're out of them and it, it never seemed to be me that controlled it it'd just be something like oh, you're done now that, that's it for today but it, it was yeah, like- i know when i'm done each day and i try to write a little bit at least five times a day and by a little bit i mean i was at the school of stephen king i no, heard stephen yeah. king wrote three to five pa- wrote five pages a day and, you know, and then he would go off and do what he wanted. Of course, he was very prolific and yeah. and, and his mind is something else. But um, I figured if I could write between three and five, I was doing great. And I always was able to do between three and five a day. So my the books came pretty fast. And I knew when I was done at the end of the day, it was like, this is a good place to stop because the next part will be more involved and you you need to be fresh for it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you are definitely in a flow state. You lose track of time. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I do all my writing at Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, I my regular, you know, business and practices and things like that is in my home and I needed to get out to do it into a different environment. And I found that I could block out everything else going on there. And it was like it was a it, it was a message to myself. Okay. This is a place of business. Now you can't go, you know, uh, looking yeah. at other things and getting distracted. You're here to create and write. And, you know, it's, it's behavior modification. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I, and I like chai tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it is, isn't it? Because that's one of the things that um, I realized when I was writing, I, I had to mentally 
make a point i couldn't be random about it it's just like okay you, you know and i'd actually schedule time in my diary so it's just like so it's like mentally projecting forward that on monday and tuesday at three o'clock i'm going to do some writing and i don't know if that invites the energy in you know i like i said i, I never try to put any attachment to it just okay this is working and but like you i treated it you know well, i would do that too in therapy yeah yeah when i was practicing i would have i'd have some uh very uh, uh challenging clients and once in a while you know they don't teach you everything in graduate school you know about dealing with all kinds of stuff it's it's very you know superficial to say the most say the least you know and you it's everything is job training on the job you learn yeah. and sometimes i would think oh my god i don't know what to do with this client this is this is maybe beyond my skill set right now and then i would just a thought would pop into my head and i would use it and it would work you know and uh um so you know i follow those instincts now because i i find that if you kind of struggle and against them uh it, it the, the the path is not smooth yeah. <laughs> it's more rocky you know resistance um you know, where there's resistance, there's persistence. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, um, so, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I've learned in my older age, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready next week to turn 71. And uh, I, I realize that you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I honestly pitched yes. you much lower <laughs> than that. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say my age because, you know, I've worked with energy and I think energy keeps you young and and also an intense curiosity keeping yeah. an open mind and so forth like that you know if you keep your mind and you're active i'm physically active i'm mentally active and you know it's uh, but i've learned you know you have to keep an open mind especially if you don't know and understand the topic i mean you don't want your your mind so open that your brain falls out but yeah, yeah, but sure. you know that's 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 the key and because of it, I started attracting very uh, clients that uh, uh, were really outside the box. You know, I always talk about, and I mentioned it in my book, Fractals of God, a Psychologist, Near-Death Experience and Journeys into the Mystical. I know it's a long title. And, you know, I dealt with a lot of, uh, I had a neurofeedback clinic, but I also dealt with a dissociative identity disorder, which back then used to be called multiple personality disorder. Yeah. And man, I learned more from that clients than I could have ever learned in any schooling program. And, you know, to really think outside the box and, uh, you know, many of them were, uh, you know, were very psychic, extremely psychic. I used to. So, yeah, that was a learning experience. A time ago, I used to work in a day center and, you know, adults with various learning disabilities or conditions or something. And there was always one or two that would be having conversations with people. And if you observed them, they were talking to something they they, they do you know what i mean i i've worked with schizophrenics and stuff like that you know i know there's lots of different conditions and lots of reasons and i, I work in head injury rehabilitation i'm a qualified hypnotherapist i'm i know there's so many scopes of what the mind can do oh. <laughs> yeah so and but there's sometimes it's just i would look at these people and if you watched them it was more to do with the the way they were talking and their eye pans because they were talking like you and I are talking. They would be looking at someone mm -hmm. 
and I'd be and people like I know he's you know he's crazy and he does medications and I'd be like no he's having a conversation with someone he definitely is Mm -hmm. because yes sometimes the veils are very thin yeah you know between dimensions and you know I, I I you probably have heard of people talk about when they're on their deathbed yeah they're 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 seeing somebody or they start talking to somebody they see them you know and um it's my understanding of that uh the 12 dimensions that exist in the universe are all within each other sort of like those russian nesting dolls a doll within a doll within yep. a doll so bleed through oftentimes does happen and these people you know um may have less filters to be i mean you and i have a lot more filters on so we're not bombarded by you know i see dead people and everything yeah, else yeah. going on on a daily basis so we can function and they don't. And so then it becomes dysfunctional for them. But who's to say that they're not in touch with a whole different realm that we just, you know, have uh, our filters have blocked out. And I've I've seen angels appear twice in my therapy, uh, once on an EEG screen. You know, okay. everything went wild. And when when the person came out of the uh, it was like an alpha theta, theta deep session, they came out and they were you know, they had some brain injury and they were trying, they, they just couldn't let go of the fact that their life would never be the same again. They had done tremendous amount of work, but they thought they'd pick up their life, their old job yeah. and, you know, start again. And that wasn't likely to happen. They made a lot of progress, but, you know, life had changed. And, you know, I'm seeing this, this EEG, um, you know, the amplitude just swamp on my computer and, and the person's not moving around. He's got, uh, you know, electrodes on him and, you know, so it's not artifact. And, but, and so I'm looking at all my equipment very quickly to see, is there something wrong? But then I was aware that there was a charge of electrical charge in the room. I could feel it, you know, sort of like when the hair on your, your, your arm stands up, that's what it felt like. And I remember saying silently to the room, I know you're here. I just can't see you. And then, you know, within about a minute or two after I did that, it calmed down on my EEG screen. And so when when the guy came out, it was like a 50 minutes uh, alpha theta deep, deep trauma recovery session. And uh, I, I, you know, I didn't tell him what had happened. And I said, what was the experience like for you? And he goes, oh, I saw an angel. And the angel showed me that I was like being a child again. And I was up in, in, in my friend's treehouse, and we were all sitting there on the treehouse platform, our legs dangling over and we didn't have a care in the world and life was good and joyful. And he said, I think that that angel was trying to show me my life could be that way again. And it was like that big aha moment that usually doesn't happen in one session, but it did this time. And after that, he started, uh, he started uh, um, getting involved with his grandchildren, which he hadn't before. He started gardening. He started volunteering at uh, a marine science thing. And, uh, you know, he was happy. He had, he had made that transition. And, you know, an angel came to him, but my EEG equipment just happened to pick it up. And, uh, you know, another time it happened with a, a, a dissociative identity client, a uh, you know, she's all of a sudden her eyes fluttered back and this this being came forward and and identified itself that it wasn't within her, you know, alter system. And and it started talking in these and thous like something biblical. And I'm thinking, oh, I've never seen this one before. And I've had this client for years. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> you know, 
And that's when it identified itself that it was outside the system and proceeded to tell me about things about my life that my client had no access to. She wouldn't have known and came forward to tell me that I needed to prepare myself and prepare the client actually, because in six months time, I was going to leave my practice. I was going to go somewhere else. And everything would change for her. And at the time, I didn't think that what's going to happen in six months. I don't have anything on the horizon. But as it turned out, it did. And uh, and, you know, with all this information and when the when the this angel inside her, this other being uh, departed, it left. And my client just slumped forward like a raggedy and doll and had no recollection of what had happened. And, you know, it was so, you know, like I said, I've seen some really strange things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just um, if some, somebody listening to this and they want to find out more, obviously there's your books. Um, where, where would you suggest they start looking and how would you direct their curiosity? Um, well, you know, on my website, uh, trinfinity8.com, I also have ascension11.com and stackslibraryoftruth.com. But on the trinfinity8.com, or you can just Google my name and you'll find it, uh, there's a tab that says blog. And if you go to that blog, over the years, I've written so many things about experiences, esoteric things, my, my you know, uh, archaeological explorations and so forth like that. And just things in general that, you know, people would ask that are questing. You know, it's a good place to start. And maybe then that'll lead you to other, a more in, more in-depth uh, quest. Because, you know, we're all truth seekers deep down. We all want the truth and we're all questing to find out and understand you know, wh why we're here, what this universe is all about, wh why what's happening is why it's happening. And, you know, it, it uh, it's easier to navigate the chaoticness of it when you know, you know, what, what, uh, what's behind it. Yeah. Okay. So, Another question for you. Um, yeah. So, and, and then we'll get closer to wrapping up and this one's completely random. I just like to throw it in for everybody. If you, if you could be at any place, any time in history, where would you be? What would you be driving? And what music would you be listening to? Um, well, I always like the oldies, but if you went back, it wouldn't be the oldies no, but it, it's, it's a magical um, but, world. You can do what you want. Yes. Um, I would go back to... Uh, I, I would go back to uh, e e the times in ancient Egypt because I, I spent a lot of times there. I'm very familiar with the temples and 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 certain things, the practices they did and so forth. So I feel more comfortable. I had a lot of lifetimes in ancient Egypt. But if I was to go back and talk to somebody in history, uh, hands down, Nikola Tesla. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Because, you know, he, I don't think he really was from this dimensional world he was so far beyond and knew so many things, you know, free energy. I mean, he's the granddaddy of any laser weaponry. Uh, well, of course, it was used in weaponry later, but, you know, all those things. And he just didn't have a good PR person. You know, he was he had uh, he had OCD, he was obsessive compulsive disorder. He was a hand, chronic hand washer. He was he was wired a bit differently. So, you know, he didn't know how to to. Um, to uh finesse the crowds yeah yeah he wasn't yeah he wasn't a businessman and they took advantage of it 
And, uh, um, but he was so far advanced. And, and so I would love to sit down and have a conversation with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David.